0: Hi, this is Danny Boyle, the director of Sunshine. And this is the opening title credits for Fox. We were going to run a competition for this because, in fact, I don't know whether you've noticed, uh, we weren't—we're not running the competition anyway—that it's running backwards, the, the visually. It usually starts at the end here and runs forward to the Fox searchlight, but we ran it backwards, and virtually nobody ever notices, which is amazing, really, and is, uh, I think, because of music. Because, amazingly enough, although we watch films and talk about the visuals the whole time, 70% of the experience is sound. And because the sound's running forwards, everybody thinks that the picture is. Mankind faces extinction. This is the first image I ever had for the film. I remember the first time I ever read the script. It's not really like this in the script, and, but I always imagined it this circle of light closing in on it as though we were travelling towards the sun. And then, as you see, it turns into the craft itself. ...left Earth frozen in a solar winter. The project began with Alex Garland, who we'd worked together on 28 Days Later. And I'd gone off to make a film called Millions. And he rang me up and said he'd got a script he wanted me to have a look at. And it was this quite slim script called Sunshine. And um, it was about our star, really. And there didn't, I couldn't remember, I couldn't think of any film had ever been about the sun seemed extraordinary to me, but we never found out that there had been anything. I think there's a bit in... Um, I think there's a bit in Lost in Space where they go through, they pass through the sun and go, whew, that was warm, uh, but that's it, really. Um, so it was wonderful to start researching, really, about our star, the thing that keeps us all alive and on which we're completely dependent. And the principle of the film that that's in jeopardy, threatens everything, it's the maximum... ...vulnerability that you could ever imagine for mankind, really. And that's the mission that they're on. Aboard a ship called Icarus... ...and uh, we've got a, had a lot of people asking why it's called Icarus, really. And there was something in the script originally that said it was because... ...it was to remind Earth and the people on the mission... ...of their humanity and their humility... ...that failure was the most likely outcome, in a way, on that mission... ...so advanced and ambitious, really, is this. Hey Icarus. Please refilter the observational portal. That's Chiho Chung, is the voice of Icarus talking to Cliff Curtis, yeah. and it's one of the nightmares of making a sci-fi film is <laughs> the voice of HAL, of course, the computer from 2001. Yeah. You have a major decision to make about what are you going to do about the voice of the computer if it's going to be a computerised voice, and she was wonderful actually because she's partly Zimbabwean and partly Chinese and lives in London and. The casting director, Gail Stevens, had seen her on the stage... ...and thought she'd be perfect for the voice of Icarus. 2%. And we, what we did is we had her on the, on the set the whole time with us... ...so that the interaction with the actors was live, constantly. You know, it wasn't recorded. Here's one of our, um... ...the beginning, really, of our CG imagery, really. The first shot of the film is, is CG and, is in fact, the, that first shot you saw is, in fact, the longest CG shot that the company, NPC, have ever done. And their work, uh, led by a guy called Tom Wood, is uh, amazing in the film. All the stuff you see, none of it was there, of course. One of your tasks as a director is to try and find a level or an experience for the actors that will make them pitch their reaction correctly. So it's an appropriate reaction to what they cannot see and will be there eventually. And we did a lot of it, obviously, through light, through Alvin Kushner's light, the cinematographer. In fact, in this scene, he was looking at a kind of disco curtain of lights blazing in his face. And that allowed him to react like that. And then you go inside the ship. These photos were based on, NASA always take a photo, uh, of the ship crew floating. And in fact, that photograph's a wonderful trick that Richard Conway, the um, the special effects guy, dreamed up, which is they're all on bicycles. And if you photograph them from above and they're sat on a unicycle, they all look like they're floating. It's an amazing little trick. This is the classic kind of eating scene. One of the things we discovered is that NASA said that they were going to have to, you know, on long-term space travel, unlike 2001 with the pre-packaged food and, you know, coming out of a microwave or whatever, they would try to encourage them to, to grow and cook their own food and probably take food with them like fish and things like that, you know, so that they could... The rhythm, the routine of human life on Earth, they would maintain the cooking ritual and... Uh, that was one of the things we found out and we tried to use in the film so that there's... A cooking scene. There was, in fact, a, a, a scene of Benny cooking much earlier which got cut. There's not much been cut from the film, but that was one of the things that was cut from the film. One of the things we tried to do is that we, once we'd established the ship behind this huge shield was that when you're inside the ship, the colour hue is mostly in the palette of blue, grays, greens. There's very few things that are orange or yellow or red. Uh, Apart from the sauce bottle here, actually. Um, (laughs) But we we kept those to an absolute minimum so that when you went outside the craft, you'd been robbed of the colour yellow for so long that you could be washed with it. And that was one of the ways that we tried to present the sun because you have to maintain its power throughout the whole of the film and in fact increase its power ideally as the film goes on. No great drama. We are flying into the dead zone seven days sooner than we thought. I love these scenes at the beginning of... These kind of sci-fi films where they all they all wake up and eat, or they all meet and eat and and talk, and uh, uh, you're kind of gradually introduced to the crew. This was one of the first scenes that we shot actually on the film. Uh, well, mom and dad, uh, Killian's message home, I'll be proud of your son. which you get to hear a little bit about. Nine. You get planted here, and then comes back to you towards the. End of the film. He found that very difficult, Kyle, because in order to do it, he had to look straight into a mirror. So he's kind of looking at himself, talking to himself, which you would imagine all actors would love. But in fact, Killian's a very modest guy. He, he found that very weird. This is a wonderful set made by Mark Tilsley, our designer, the Oxygen Garden. Which, where well, the idea was that had condensation water was created by the difference between temperature between the outside of the ship and the inside of the ship. So they had that natural flow of water. I wish we'd have been able to have more in the oxygen garden, but we could, only, um, we could only generate a certain amount of scenes in there. But it was wonderful to have that space. So I just wanted to let you know that... And the message was originally much longer. We cut it down quite a bit. The opening of the film, it's one of the rules of sci-fi that you become aware of, is that the opening of these sci-fi films are quite slow. You need the pace, it's one of the absolute, we tried to speed it up, you know, we did, we did speed it up, but it doesn't work, you have to be patient. And there's something about the, the longevity of the flight, the distances involved, the, the, the void that they're in, that requires you to go, especially early on, at a very slow pace. And there's a great tradition, of course, in uh, this kind of serious sci-fi of that kind of pace. And it certainly belongs to Uh, very proudly, I hope, belongs to that genre of film. The other side of sci-fi is the more fantasy side, like Star Wars and Star Trek, where anything goes, really, you can have any creatures and any kind of planet and anything you want. But this, which is kind of based on a certain amount of realism, has this tendency to have... to be quite slow. And there's a melancholy as well about it as well. I, I guess that's reflected in their distance from Earth. We read a very interesting book called Moon Dust by Andrew Smith. A writer friend spoke to uh, all the astronauts who'd been to the moon... And, ...or tried to speak to them. Some of them wouldn't speak to him. And the, the disturbance they felt in being away from the Earth... Was, ...is one of the uh, themes of that book, really, and we tried to use that as well. Oh, uh, Icarus, dial it down a little, will you? Yes, Garth. The idea of the crew... The balance of the crew was that in 50 years' time, the the, the economies that would be able to pay for this kind of space travel, which is incredibly expensive, would be the Asian economies. And so I felt that it was very important that the crew would be a mixture of Americans, which is because of, you know... I suppose a bit of history, but also because of cinematic realities, you know, cinema films these days, and an Asian crew as well. And we were very lucky to get these actors. Michelle Yeoh, who I've been an enormous fan of since uh, I first saw her in the Bond movie. (laughs) Best Bond girl ever, in my opinion. And Hiroyuki Sanada, who's an amazing actor, who we were told about, actually, by very kindly by Wong Kai-wai, who told us to look at at his work in Twilight Samurai, an amazing film he made. We're very fortunate to get them both. I think it was a lack of oxygen. Not on the outward journey, at any rate. And here's a couple of the, uh, <laughs> uh, uh... Guy, Chris Evans, actually, who... I didn't know, and I hadn't seen... In fact, I don't think when I cast him, Fantastic Four was out, which is what a lot of people know him from. He's an amazing actor. I just met him in an audition, and I thought he was very, very talented, and, um was huge value, really, for the uh, film. the film. sir, i report to flight deck. What's up? It's a kind of classic yeah. technology, really. We were trying to do... Um, Mark Tilsley had this idea with the technology that there was a... He's the, he's the production designer. He, he had this idea of the, what he called the red bus rule, which is 50 years ago in London, there were red buses and today they're still red buses. They're slightly different, of course, but they're basically still red buses. And so we set the film 50 years in the future so that, again, the technology would be recognisable. It would still be touchable. It wasn't like thought control technology or anything like that. Nothing that's really, really beyond us. So that's what we tried to to make the inside of the ship and the way that they control the ship feel and look like. And obviously, the their, uh, their clackers, as they're called, around their necks were like based on iPods. Kind of a development of that, really, and they'd be a communication device. And that's the, the um, medical centre that is in there with Searle, the psych officer. Behind them is the earth Ring which is about to go in. And this is one of the few scenes that we shot outside the studio, which we went to uh, the woods. Well, we actually, we went to Docklands first and, and shot this wave crashing. ...which is a huge flatbed lorry bottom dropping into the water uh, in front of them. And that's been taken out by the CG guys and left with that. And then we went to the wood to shoot this element of it like this. And I don't know why that bit always reminds me of Solaris... ...which is another film we're deeply indebted to. In, um, uh, the three masterpieces, really, of space that, you, that you're that you with in this kind of sci-fi are... ...2001, the Kubrick, the Tarkovsky Solaris and the... Um, And the first Alien film, the Ridley Scott, and they are titans really that hover above you as you try to make your film and you're you're constantly bumping into them. You can't avoid them. Sometimes you just have to doff your, your, you know, salute them really. And then try and make your own mark in in some way if you can. So this was one of the few scenes that we could get into that we could actually put in the Oxygen Garden because it was a scene that was originally, I think in the mess room beautifully played by the two of them. <laughs> and it's one of our few laughs. There's, there's all, again, that's one of the things about serious sci-fi. There ain't many laughs in it, really. And this, that was one of, the, that's one of the key ones, really. And it's one of the few scenes that we managed to uh, move into the oxygen garden. All this stuff, by the way, is CG. The whole of the ship has been created by CG. They used to do that with, um, they used to do models for ships, you know, for spaceships. And these days it makes more sense now to do them all CG. The power of CG has moved on so much. And so now you're pretty much committed to using CG models the whole time. This is the introduction of Pinbacker, played by Mark Strong, who I'll talk about a bit later, actually, who did an amazing job under incredibly difficult and trying circumstances. There's a, I mean, it's fairly obvious, really. There's a, there's a common one of my favourite films ever is Apocalypse Now, and ironically, it's I think one of Alex Garland's favourite films as well because there's there's in the in the three films we've done together you can spot we adapted his book The The Beach, Twenty Eight Days Later, and this there's a kind of Kurtz figure to be absolutely frank, a figure out there who has either on his own as in this case or with uh, in 28 Days Later and in the beach, establish a community separately with a vision, a different vision of the way life is. And in this, as somebody pointed out, it's more of the, the heart of lightness that they travel into than the heart of darkness. Shit. This is a typical movie setup up scene for where Mace will end up eventually in that water. You need to, we needed to establish the water and how freezing cold it is. And I'll talk about that later in his big scene when that happens there. This leads to one of people's favourite bits of the movie, really, which is the, when they first come across Mercury, which was originally... I think the way it was written and the way we conceived it originally was that Mercury would be... You know, they'd come into orbit around Mercury, and it was a huge thing. But then I saw this photograph of... Reflection. I think it was... of Mercury in orbit around the Sun. It's one of the NASA photographs. I think it's taken from the SOHO satellite. And it was of a tiny Mercury. Or, perhaps it was Venus, maybe it was Venus circling the sun,, oh. and it was just so unexpected, and it just put into without drawing attention to it, it just put into uh, perspective how big the sun is, which is you know thirty still thirty million miles away, and it just dwarfs this planet, and it was a great moment of introspection. We tried some voiceovers here of the actors. But what they were thinking of. Troy there, Troy Garrison, is thinking about home, which is one of his preoccupations. He's not looking in towards the sun, he's looking back home, and very sadly for him. But the voiceovers didn't work and you didn't need them really and it's the music that I think take you there with, it's a wonderful score by Underworld and John Murphy, uh, working in collaboration. And now you come to the classic moment, which is, <laughs> These films, serious sci-fi films, are usually built up of three elements: there's a ship, a crew, and a signal. And, <laughs> and that signal changes everything. The decisions that are made based on that signal. And if you think about all the great movies, those kind of great movies, they're they're absolutely based around those three elements. Um, and I think there probably will there'll always be a limitation to the type of film you can make in serious kind of space mission until we begin colonising, if we do. You know, which will open up other areas then. But for the moment, this is the moment that changes everything, the signal. Twenty-three hours ago, while making a routine check on the comm systems... ...while listening to your space music... ...while scanning the frequencies, I heard... A... This is a very, very long scene for a movie. And I think people thought that it was gonna get, get cut. But we rehearsed this a lot and, and got it really sharp. And the signal is clear enough. we shot it We're very relatively quickly. ...and very early on in the shoot, yes. And I think it's great for the actors to have a big scene together... ...which is the, which is about them and their reactions as a group, a group dynamic. And it sort of gave them a lot of confidence, I think. Because I think when you come into a movie like this, you can think... ...am I just gonna get drowned out by special effects or, you know, what's the film gonna be about? But early on in the film, we spent, eclipse, I think, three days shooting these scenes... ...the cooking scene you saw earlier yeah, and this scene. And it's said to the actors, you know, this is about you guys, really, you know, and your reactions, and the the film is dedicated to that. And I'd made them all live together in a student accommodation in a University of East London when they first arrived. I think they were a bit shocked. I think they were expecting to stay in the Dorchester and, in fact, they were in Mile End (laughs) by the canal. But they re- they responded to it very well and, they, and a definite group dynamic was created. And, you know, when you join the film, they're 16 months they've been together. So you've got to make some gesture towards doing that. And I think it leads to kind of quality that you get in a kind of scene like this. Very proud of the scene because it's a very much an actor-driven scene. It's beautifully written as well, of course, by Alex. And uh, you could feel it when we rehearsed it. You thought, that's going to work, I think. You know, and we should be... Have the confidence to play the scene as we want it, you know. That's a bit of a nightmare trying to get them all to follow the same eye line when there's actually nothing there. <laughs> that's one of the that's your job as a director, really. There's two jobs really, organizing to make sure everybody's there on time, and then making sure they all look in the right direction. <laughs> you can boil a lot of directing down to ninety percent of directing is that, I think. The signal that you hear there is actually from space sounds that you get from... There's a university credited at the end of the film, I think it's the University of Iowa, where they collect sound from space, bounced back from space. And that was based on some of the sounds in their library. Very beautiful signal sound, which we use right at the end of the film as well. Just to make it absolutely clear, there's no way we're going to do that. One of the other things about that's interesting about space movies, in terms of the casting, is yeah, that, probably with the exception of Apollo 13, which is slightly different, um, they tend to suit ensemble casts, where you've got an equality of casting, where everybody's a kind of equal. There's something wonderful about that, because you can gather a lot of good, really good actors, ambitious young actors, and... You can kill them in any order you want, then. Um, you can literally knock them off. Nobody knows who's going to survive, who's going to go first, who's going to keep going right the way through. And in fact, the guy who does survive is hidden. Right the way through this scene, you, you can barely see him. It's deliberately shot like this so that you're not aware of him uh, as they struggle to make the big decision here about whether it's worth changing direction or not on picking up Icarus 1. As are our own lives. Exactly. However. There is something on board dear Clip Curtis I'd seen him in uh, the Whale Rider really interesting actor um, brings a different dynamic to everything he does his perspective it's one of the things you look for in actors is that they kind of it's not it's not that they challenge you it's just that they come up with ideas that you wouldn't necessarily think of yourself. You want them to be little mini directors in themselves, you know, about their own performance. You want them to have. And sometimes you have to overrule them for the sake of the harmony of the whole film. But often it's where a lot of the goodness comes from, you know? It's a lot of assumptions. It is. It's a risk assessment. The question is Does the risk of a detour outweigh the benefits of an extra payload? You're about to see. Yeah, he's kind of hidden from you, and then. Uh, and then suddenly the attention is pulled around to a physicist. On the original crew, on Icarus 1, they didn't have a psych officer. And although you don't know this in the film, we decided that they added a psych officer because they thought one of the things that maybe has gone wrong with with the first ship could be technical or it could be psychological because I think that NASA or the space agency that sends them on behalf of the Earth knows that one of the huge pressures is psychological. And suddenly this psychological load it's great is even is 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 increased on Kappa the physicist who's given the decision to make whether to, to move or not really. Because it's his bomb, really. Okay, Chris, I want you to run the map and um, he goes into the earth room and again this is one of those scenes where <laughs> the actor's nightmare really where he's in front of a kind of blue screen, green screen, can't see any of what you're what you're seeing eventually. That's all gonna be recreated later. And uh, He just has to do his best, really, and trust, and trust the director and the CG guy who's telling him, "Oh, it's going to be like this. It's going to be like that," and uh, act accordingly, as Jack Nicholson says. (laughs) (laughs) There's lots of shots of the eyes like that, which are very difficult to do. You have to get a special lens to be able to get that close to the eye. But it is mesmeric, and I'll tell you one of the things that's really weird. At that kind of range, when you're that close, you can interchange people's eyes, and nobody's any idea whose eyes they are. <laughs> it's true. Some of the I think there's an eye used earlier that you think is Cliff Curtis's, and is in fact Hiroyuki Sonada's. Um, and we swap them about a bit, you know, for for editing reasons. <laughs> and... heads A lot of this room is actually which looked remarkably like the Earth Room, was actually um, created by the CG guys copying the Earth Room. We originally we didn't shoot it in a, in a room eventually. We shot it in a, a kind of an invisible room, a room that's marked out with little green dots in corners, but actually there's nothing there. There's just stilts for corners with little green dots on. And then they put all the information in afterwards. Two last hopes are better than one. That's it. And that's where the decision is made. To change, and that's his first crisis, really, in which he kind of uh, comes through. Really, makes a big decision based on that, and out of it comes his. I guess it's a kind of nightmare or a dream, really, of 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 falling into the sun, which we we use then later on in the film as well. ...begins to burn himself, really, and gather his burns... ...as he exposes himself to greater and greater um, levels of energy from the light. Again, that's... Um, that's what you, have to ask, you have to ask the actors just to perform it... ...and then you kind of drop them, you drop everything else in afterwards. This is a um, very simple, very lovely scene between the two of them. One of the interesting things that we, we tried at Script Stage, and uh, Alex, we worked on the script together for about a year. Alex did, must have done about 30 drafts of the scripts, and we were trying out things. It's a great way to try out ideas, is at um, is, is the script. You know, it's the cheapest way that you can do it. And we developed their relationship so that it became much more romantic. But it's very, again, one of these rules of this kind of film. They don't really work, though, the kind of relationships. If you develop them into a full physical relationship, sex. We had a great scenario set up for it. Sex in the Oxygen Garden would have been great. But really, we couldn't make it believable. It didn't feel right. And it's very interesting. There's very few films where you ever see it developed in space. Whereas in yeah. conventional movies, no it's a key ingredient, you know, where. Um, a couple like that will develop a relationship during set against everything else. Here comes the big crisis... ...which is Benny's, really, Tray's. And I gave them... I remember giving them... You, you'll only see it a little bit in this scene, because we cut round it for various reasons. But I remember giving them a photograph. I like to work with a lot of photographs. I remember giving them a photograph, a very big close-up of a bullfighter just about to deliver the blow to the to the bull. And he was so focused. And I said, they should have that kind of focus and almost pitiless look when they look at each other. When they make a mistake, they're completely intolerant of mistakes. And there's a wonderful moment later on here where uh, Michelle has that look and it's not on screen for very long. And it's just, absolutely unforgiving that somebody has dropped below a certain standard. And that was one of the things we always talked about, that they're, they're, what they expect from each other is absolute. They are, they are selected to be the, the alpha humans, if you like, in their fields. They are the best people sent on this mission of such importance. And what they expect from each other on that mission is unremitting. And there's a certain way they look at each other. Which is unforgiving, really. The fact is, we are still alive. And we didn't get to use it that much, but they all took it all on board as part of their. Yeah, uh, there. You clients. can't really see it on here. On a cinema screen, you can see it much more. Tried to reset the no the One of the things we did was that, as I was saying, was that. This palette you see of this blue, grey, green colour, you, you, which you become accustomed to, and it's, you know, fairly traditional for a kind of sci-fi film, very much established by um, Ridley Scott, that kind of slightly sweaty look, kind of industrial. It's almost Victorian in the Alien movie, almost, in a way, the, the look of it. Victorian industry, almost. You establish this like this so that you rob the people, you rob people of the... the the colours that you're going to use outside the ship. And then we tried to we tried to hide in the next sequence, we tried to hide as much as possible the, a, a glimpse of the suit because we that's why we shot this from inside the suit. <laughs> a lot of it's shot from inside the suit or very tight angles so that you got very little impression of the suit until it actually went outside. And that's obviously because it's, as you see eventually the colour it is, is, uh, you know gold like the, like the front front of the shield, and we were told that actually the um, the gold is the color that they will use, and in fact, that is the, the, the color they use on the um, on the shields that when, when they use satellites that go anywhere near the sun at all, and it dissipates the heat most it 's the most efficient substance for dissipating the heat, although in fact, I believe they they would use gold leaf they, but it wasn 't practical for us to have the shield because so much action has to take place on it later, but it would actually wouldn 't be solid, it would be gold leaf that they would use. but that's why this scene is shot so tight. And again, it starts the feeling of claustrophobia. We wanted to give... We had this idea about the space helmet, which you're gonna kind of get to see properly when she, once she closes the helmet, and the camera inside is established as their contact with the people. This is one of the... <laughs> this is one of the amazing nightmares about doing a sci-fi film, is what do you do about the space helmet? And, um... Uh, it's really interesting because when you have these, you, ha- you have these endless meetings talking about the space helmet. With in this case, we're talking with Sutterat Lalab, who did as costume designer. And when you're having these conversations, you can feel Stanley Kubrick in the room. Literally, I kid you not. It's like, um, or, or Ridley Scott, or, or, or Andre Tarkovsky, all having the same discussion about what are we going to do with the space helmet? Because you've got this. I, Ironically, because it's a movie, you want to know who is inside each helmet, who is there and which one is which. But of course, the the, the design of the helmets in, in, in reality is to stop light getting in because light out there is very, very dangerous to them. So you have this um, problem where is so normally they have a goldfish bowl type helmet and they put lights inside so that you can see it's that actor, it's John Hurt or whoever it is, you know? So we thought we can't do that on this because the whole point about these suits and we made them gold to the idea that to protect them from the light like the front of the ship is to stop the light hurting them in any way. And they would be protected, any vision out they would have would be minimal and we came up with this kind of medieval idea of this slit. And then we actually, and then it starts to, you start to go for a funnel shape to protect them even further. And it starts to look like Kenny out of South Park. And literally that was one of the reference points. There was a very serious reference point as well. There was an Izzy Mayaki costume, which we used as a kind of reference point as well. And we were, at one point we were going to make the, the suits very like samurai suits as well, but they they drift towards, even though we've used a different color than NASA, most NASA suits are white and are used like that. we use a different color. There is also something that drags you back to a kind of way the suits are always made, a certain look of the suits rather than the, I guess it's because so they don't become literally vehicles. They actually still resemble a, a human being. You can only depart so much from that, and that's what we try to do with that. These are some key shots establishing, trying to establish the size of the ship. Because although it's been, it's, uh, been established earlier that the size of the bomb is the size of Manhattan, you have to try and create shots where you see Human figures, and then you see, you know, by pulling out, you begin to see the size, the size of the ship, and the size of the shield, and the cargo that they're carrying behind it. That's the moment of tipping the cap to Alien. He very cleverly has a lot of bouncing um, toys on Alien, which I always used to think, why does he have them? And of course, he's very clever because it actually it's very difficult in space to suggest motion. So that's one of the ways that they, they do it, is they create these things moving inside the ship, like that, for instance. I know what it is, flyboy. And then when you go outside the ship, I always remember insisting early on, in the early naive days, one of my ambitions was to not have any star fields. Uh, to have no star field in the shi- outside the ship because I said, you know, when you're in space and the sun's there, you wouldn't see any stars because it's, you know, it'd just be black. And I thought, oh, it'd be velvet like it'll be beautiful. But of course, if you do that, you can't see the ship moving because <laughs> it just looks like it's stopped. Everybody thinks, why has it stopped? Has something gone wrong really early on? Whereas in fact, this is where it goes wrong. Fatal damage to comms. Which is the comms tower gets damaged, uh, gets exposed to the sun on the angles, but they realize it, they know it's gonna happen and they let it happen. And it's obviously, it's the the knock on effect of that later, which actually creates the huge problems for it. So again, this is the key shop coming up where we try to establish the sheer scale of the ship when you see the size of the astronauts and then you pull out, they call it our corkscrew shot. So elements of this were all, there were elements of this that were shot. A lot of this, like for instance, that is, very much a C this corkscrew shot if we called it, is very much a CG shot which is pre-vised and then you you hand it over to the guys and they start working on it. And they it can take, as some of the shots did, it can take nine months for a shot to arrive. But they're well worth it in the end. And it's very it's very frustrating in the editing waiting for these shots sometimes. Cause you, you wanna kinda get on with the film and you try to do it without them, but they're key moments where you have to you give the audience a sense of uh, the scale and how small these guys are. So the build-up, a lot of this sequence is actually based around the, um, the helmet cams. And these were a very, very uncomfortable uh, contraption to wear, which included a camera, obviously, to look at the actors. But the two main actors who had to wear them were Killian and Hiroyuki. And they did very well. And as you can see there with Haruyuki, they developed, give an actor a prop, like a helmet, and they see there's a camera in there and they realize how to start using it to make the audience feel it with them. So they start breathing, like that. And then they start doing a lot of slavering acting, like that, and it kind of takes you in there with them, like that. And the, the, these shots here, These are the biggest nightmare of all, really, is trying to do zero-G. We create a small section of the shield in the studio in East London where we shot. And then you have the actors and, and often the stunt performers on wires or on what they call pole arms, where you're lifting them, trying to make them appear to be weightless. And it does make you realize, it sounds obvious, but... You don't realise it until you try and make a space film how absolutely everything is dictated by gravity in our lives. Every single thing around us and, and then you try and defy it by having motion without gravity and it's very um, difficult to do, very time consuming. And it's very interesting actually because it, when you look at, if you look at the real footage of the space station, zero gravity happens in... It's the speed of things is exactly the same. They move around, they almost look quite jerky. And that's because movies have established that zero-G has to be done in slow motion. Because we tried to do it the other way first, and you can't. You have to slow everything down to make it look slow motion to give that feeling. Here beginneth the oxygen garden fire, which is a, was an enormous uh, challenge to us, really. We were in a very small studio, and you have to, you have to build it of so many different elements, the real set, with light interacting to it, some real fire created by Richard Conway, and then you hand that over to the CG guys led by Tom Wood, and they kind of put all these elements together. I love these lamps, which are ridiculous, these lollipop (laughs) lamps, because I just thought they'd have something to illuminate what they're doing up there. And it's great, because later on, you see them kind of caught by the light. (laughs) And Trey here, Ironically, feels that they've overcome his crisis, really, but they haven't. It's very interesting the way the characters are written, and I hadn't really realised this until we started doing it. Is that they are each given a crisis, a moment of that they either overcome or it destroys them in some way. And of course, Trey's here, the blame that he accepts for this. Is uh, ...destroys him almost totally, really, until his death later. This is the crisis for her, for Corazon, for Michelle, really. This beautiful, organic, wonderful living thing of beauty... ...that gives life to the, sh- to the people inside the ship that grows their food... ...is destroyed, and it's hence her behavior. And it changes her behavior after it, really. And I love that. About, it's a very good... Because it's actually... People don't realise it's very difficult. with Unless you're doing a multi-story strand thing, like shortcuts or something like that, it's very difficult to keep more than a couple of characters in the air at the same time. Zero, zero. Copy, zero, six, and it's zero, six, very clever of Alex the way that he, he... He displays their character through their crisis, really. They each get a crisis which focuses and makes them, they make them feel like a you know, the story is theirs, that it belongs to all of them at different times. Rather than it feel, which was one of the things I worried about, is that, because it often happens in movies, is that you, you cut a character, you know, somebody gets cut right back, and it didn't happen with this. They, they all retained their crisis, their, their place in the plot, really, which is why we got good actors to do it, because they, they don't come along to do nothing. You know, they come along because they sense an opportunity to do something exciting and a bit different, really. returning vessel to original rotation This is the other side of the music really which is John Murphy John wrote this wonderful theme that you hear shortly it, it starts up shortly after this And it's more the more I guess the more classical the more conventional side of film composing that uh, It's it's not that it manipulates your emotions, although I suppose you can say that's the effect of it, but it it kind of encourages your emotions or encourages the emotions that the scene is meant to generate with you. And it's very interesting swapping the music between Underworld and, and John. Underworld did a pass across the whole film in which they would write music, weird, wonderful experiments with music in different times and different moods. And then we gave that to John and he wove in and out of it with a more kind of, I suppose, a more classical approach, really. It's a, a very interesting hybrid of the two of them. worked out really well, that, and it was a, a big challenge, that. No! Big explosions, big, huge, wonderful fire, fire effects, and the, the terrible moment for, for Corazon, really. And then the crisis is handed to someone else, really, who is the captain. You have this uh, problem that he has now, which is that, what does he do? He can see what the problem is going to be, and he has to save the physicist and send him back to the safety of the ship because his, his life is... and the delivery of the bomb is more important than any other of the individuals on the ship, really. And so he, he meets his crisis, really, and sacrifices himself in, in order to overcome it. Please, I can do this. Go. I remember doing this with Hiroyuki, this whole sequence, and when he dies in this, you get a sense of his power as an actor. You can sometimes sense it with actors, this furnace inside them, this unleashing, this energy, not necessarily through words, doesn't have to be through words in a scene, but it's a kind of what I call a King Lear moment, where you sense the ability of an actor to rise to that level if necessary. And John's music responded to that, and this is a theme that's used later, actually, for Killian's crisis, which is when he walks through the ship later on, and you can hear uh, you hear this music used again, this wonderful theme. I love music probably more than anything, to be honest. I'm a, I can't do it, I'm hopeless at it, but I love recognizing it and trying to encourage it. And I'm in awe of it, really, of their ability to... And it seems such a huge part of films to me, what you feel as you watch these things and hear this music with them. So here you see the... uh, This was the reason that we had these lamps. (laughs) These lamps get gradually destroyed because the light hits them first higher up on the ship there. I loved all that kind of stuff. very fragmented, this, because of all the different areas that the sequence is happening in. But it's held together by his mesmerizing performance. Because, again, he had nothing, really, to look at, other than a bit of light, really, and all the things are added by Tom Wood later. And I remember when they showed me that, I was like, my jaw dropped. I thought, oh, my God, you know, it's when things are far exceed even your expectations, which you want to be high, but they go beyond that. You, you, it's a joy, really. It's one of the go- that's one of the good days <laughs> when you get stuff like that. It compensates for all the other stuff, really. <laughs> so, that's the captain gone, and we nearly lose the physicist anyway, as you see here. So they have lost their captain, really, which is uh, a great piece of showmanship, really. Which is you you rob the ship of its leader straight away. So they've made this fateful decision and just everything appears to be knocking on in a bad way, and it things appearing to be get worse and worse from there. And he takes re- personal responsibility, obviously, Trey. And Searle's interest is psychological really, and um he accepts the loss. But he's on a psychological journey towards this. Star really, and to see what effect it has on our minds being out there. The guy I was talking about earlier who wrote Moon Dust, uh, Andrew Smith, he, he talks in that book about the guys who used to go around the dark side of the moon on their own, while the other two guys from the Apollo were on the moon's surface. And he talks about how that's the loneliest our species has ever been, because out of contact with Earth, no visual contact with Earth, no radio contact, in darkness, looking out into the eternity of space. And for 45 minutes, which is the time I think it took to get around the dark side of the moon, they're the loneliest person on Earth, really. I encourage the actors to read that book... As it stands now... So that with... For them, the focus is... Because they can't see any of those kind of special effects that you... that you you, you experience through the film, for them, it's really just about the psychological pressure of being in space. And of being away from home, being isolated and having these, you know, as I said, these... uh, individual crises to overcome. If we're going to complete the mission, the IGRAS-1 is our only hope. Technically... Sheena faces her character changes now because of the loss, and she's the one who actually points out what's rational, really. She becomes a very cold, rational individual at this point, and she points out bluntly, which it's often, it's actually quite amusing, really, the um, how bluntly she she puts it here for them all, and obviously that that scene is is developed later with the big vault sequence when they actually agree to take action about it. Three out of seven—that's a lot of short straws. So this is the, the kind of belly of the ship, really, where we try to establish the uh, the payload. The bomb, really, Kappa's bomb. Which, again, is very much a... You can only do a, a section of it. In reality, a small section of it that the actors can walk on and the rest of it is created by CG, by repeating patterns. And it's very interesting. This scene, this scene coming up. This was one of the few things that we reshot in the film. Originally, this scene was written was between Searle and Kappa, and we shot the scene, and they did it very well. the, the, the whole scene, Searle, the officer, the psych officer played by Cliff Curtis comes down to meet Kappa, it was exactly like this, and they talk about how do you feel about losing the, off- you know, losing the, you know, he's he was checking up on their how they were. ...checking out whether they were losing their shit, as, as, as yeah. Killing used to put it, as Cappy used to put it. We're gonna die out here. And once we assembled the film, we decided to pick the scene up again... ...and to transfer the, f- the scene between these two. And I think it's to create... ...it's to make them more vulnerable, really, is that it feels like... ...because of their relationship between them, even though it's only hinted at... ...that their guard is a little more down, really, than when he was speaking to Searle, the psych officer. ...and it makes them a little more, it creates more vulnerability between them... ...and gives you more access to them, really, as, as, as characters, I think. So that's one of the, with apologies to Cliff, who gave a very good performance... ...obviously, which I think you can see on the DVD extras. He was replaced by the wonderful Rolls-Byrne for the scene and was very gracious about it. And those will split again and again and again. It's very interesting talking to the actors about button pushing. <laughs> Which is a lot of. It's very difficult to do a lot of acting and do a lot of button pushing at the same time. It is amazing talking to them. I think what's his name, Nigel Planer, talks about that in <laughs> the art of acting is the ability to push buttons and talk at the same time. I oh, am. Yeah. No, the. The film begins to shift really as they come across the Icarus One hovering above, hovering in orbit really around the around the sun and an abandoned, an abandoned ship really, if you like. Uh, the first Icarus mission. We compress this quite a lot actually. There's quite a lot of footage of this of they. As they approached the ship, it was, it's something that, at this point, you have to you concertina some of the pace, really, to get them on the ship quicker. It was a much more um, extended piece. And one of the challenges that we had is that we didn't have enough money to create a separate Icarus ship. Because originally, our idea was that we would... Actually, it was Alex's idea that it would be like the Zebrugger. He'd read this stuff about the Zebrugger being on its side and um, we thought that we, when they went on board the ship, what would differentiate it from the Icarus II ship would be that everything would be that you'd be walking along walls, you know, as floors or ceilings as floors. Everything would be either upside down or on its side like that. But we couldn't afford to build it. We'd set the level of the film at £20 million, and we'd tried to keep to that so that we could cast who we wanted and we could make the film as we wanted to make it. So we didn't have enough money to do that. So Mark Tilsley, the designer, came up with this idea of... that we, what we would do is that we would use our existing sets, we'd finish shooting the regular scenes on them, and then that we would cover it. He got this company who covered it all in dust. So, when you go on the other ship, it's all the same sets virtually, but they've been covered in dust and they look very different. And we got away with it, I think. <laughs> Although, given the explanation that, which um, is a very creepy explanation, really, that, that Serloff offers here that, about most of the dust being human skin, there's an awful lot of human skin around if you, if you added it all up. These frames you see, these flash frames of the happy crew of Icarus One... In their, ...from their group photo, their traditional weightless photo... ...at the start of the mission, are literally one frame each. They're cut in by Chris Gill, the editor. And I love these. They're very creepy. And they, normally, in, in reality, you shouldn't be able to see these. They're literally a 24th of a second or a 25th of a second. And you shouldn't really be able to register them. But they're in such contrast to the, the set itself, that you can I, not only not see them, but you can see great detail in them as well. You recognize things about them. <sighs> <So. laughs> Bit of a jump moment, deliberate jump moment there. And our second gag coming, coming up. <laughs> uh, this is a lovely gag, which makes a reference to all, you know, to the fact that you're in a, a corridor of sci-fi, really. With predecessors. Might get picked off one at a time by aliens. And that was, there's the mention of one of them, really. Okay. You're right. But yeah, we originally, we originally tried to do uh, the presence of the other crew live. We actually flashed in some images of Pinbacker in, in the ship, but actually we, left, we changed it in the end to these things that Chris Gill, the editor, cut in. And he uses the same technique, Chris, later in, in the scene when they, they discover there's a fifth crew member. Later on, I love the discs of the the disc shape of the of the ship. That was something that we tried to use uh, many times in it. Was the was the idea of circles and the, you know the, the way Mercury looks against the sun and everything's a circle and they're a circle like at the beginning of the film. And then we u- we try and use that later on as well. this section of the uh, the interior of the bomb is the same one as, uh, as on Icarus 2 and is a kind of three quarter set i'll explain about that later when we get onto that listen up everybody you got to see this 7 years of but this life. is the original oxygen garden which had to be redressed with dust on the windows like you see there and also redressed with the plant life really to suggest that it's been it's been maintained by by solar light and by and by the condensation that is available because of the difference inside the ship to outside the ship, and it's nurtured that kind of life really. But the rest of it is this filthy dust, and I gotta be—I don't think they'll mind me saying this. The actors absolutely hated these sets because <laughs> this dust was. This dust is actually one of the big problems you have—is is it safe? Because actors are going to be breathing it in, all right. And I believe it's the same stuff that's in Cornish pasties. I was told, which are kind of like little. Meat and vegetable pies that you get in this country, <laughs> and it's the kind of cardboard they put in them, uh, unbelievably. But um, so it's safe for human consumption. So whether it's advisable or not, I don't know. And there's the crew picture with Mark Strong in the middle of it, and again on the on the very much on the unicycles. No bodies. <sighs> Bewitching out the green. And they will do this, NASA, that said they will take vegetation to create oxygen on extended space flights. They'll take ferns, they said. But I was reading today about a guy in Australia who's been using, uh, who's been in a bio tank submerged underwater, and he generated his oxygen by urinating, no less, on the owl guy. And it gives off oxygen. He stayed down there for 12 days, surviving on it. All our hopes, our our dreams are foolish. In the face of this, we are... We tried right the way way through the film, from the beginning, really. We tried to make everything as as scientifically accurate as possible. There's there's one thing that you, you can't do, which is... NASA are nowhere near doing zero g uh, doing artificial gravity. There is a way of creating it, which is centrifugal force, but it would be unbearable and uh, so we tried to keep everything else as as accurate as possible really and that 's certainly like the, 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 the plant life comes from that, and the size of the ship as well because although we were originally going to use das Bolt, we used das bolt as a reference for the for the claustrophobia of the ship. We realised, and when we talked to them, they said they'd try and give them more space than that. Because size isn't really a problem, you know, you can build it all section by section, like they built the space station, but you need to give them a bit of space to move in, otherwise they'll, you know, on a mission that's going to take at least three years, they know they would go mad, really, unless they've got a space to, you know, different kind of size areas to work in. So consequently, there's a kind of, you you get these these tunnel shapes of the, the ship and, the corridors but there's also areas that you open out into chambers that you open into like where they eat and where they um and and the oxygen garden as well so this is a this is a, like a red herring now we've had pinbacker's extraordinary message this message which is a bit like Kurtz's message in apocalypse now sent back disturbing disturbed message and then the, the suggestion is that Tray there that you saw in the background that he may have something to do with the separation of the ships, but it's a red herring really. That, and we used to play that a lot stronger than it actually is now. We, we, we juiced it a bit. These wonderful figures were created by the uh, by the guys in the art department. Um, we couldn't really see them in a huge amount of detail because, the, but they are just beautiful things that were made. Of people who' had been incinerated in front of the light, and that's obviously that 's the crew of the, the, the initial crew and this because I might as well explain really what 's actually happening here, of course, is that as they are examining this, pinbacker is moving, is changing onto the other ship, and it 's during this time that he shifts across to the other ship, and then he separates the ship and of course, from his perspective, it is to just kill all these people. ...who were on Icarus One at the time, just to abandon them in space. And he gets rid of a lot of the problems straight away... ...by separating the ships. He goes on to the mother ship, which has got an active bomb on it. He gets rid of half the crew left behind here like this, or that's what he's thinking. And then he just can bide his time to get rid of the... Um, ...of these who are left on the other ship. But he doesn't reckon for the resourcefulness of uh, Chris Evans, of course, of... Uh, who comes up with an idea eventually of how to get across from ship to ship. We have a major incident. We are floating... Three and poor old Harvey, really. His, uh, <laughs> his sadness begins, really, which is that he's inherited the crown, he's now the leader. But really, and this is, was wonderful, Troy... Troy's focus throughout was going home. <laughs> that was all he could think about. He wasn't bothered about reigniting the sun. He's just like a lot of human beings. He just wanted to get home and see his wife, really. He was missing so much. And then suddenly, he's in, not only is he in charge of um, the responsibility of the mission, but the mission is going from bad to worse constantly. And then he's got this huge problem, which he turns up. Eventually, he turns up into this scene. And uh, there's only one space suit. So in theory, at least at this point in time, there's only one person who's going to make this jump across really. In Mace, Mace that's a, a crisis that Mace overcomes, that he thinks his way, he literally thinks his way out of about how to get across there. But for Harvey, of course, Harvey can only see the fact in front of his eyes that he's somehow got to get home. and <laughs> He isn't going to get home if he stays on this ship and therefore um, he plays this beautifully actually. they, they, The, the guys play this really, really well not a low priority. You're a comms officer on a ship that has no means of communication. I am the captain. The mission needs a captain to hold it together. I think we recycled the suits, so... Because, again, we couldn't afford to make too many of them, so we kind of, like... I think we had a one tarnished one and one No, we had two clean ones, and then one of the clean ones was tarnished to make it actually, uh... There's so many logistics involved in it. We had a guy, Bernie Ballou, who actually thought through all the ways that we could save money. ...by shooting the other suits first and then tarnishing one and using it later... ...and you save the money by you don't have to make another suit like that. You need somebody on the a film like this where the logistics are so complicated... ...and so many people working in different areas. You need this brain who is trying to kind of have an overview... ...of the campaign of how to do it, really. You know, of how to save money by redistributing things. And so it's a credit to him, really, all this. This is a real set which we used a crane to go into like that. A wonderful bit of set which was built way up in the air by Mark Tilsley of these two airlocks, really. So we tried to make this fire, the way they fire across from each other, as real as possible. One of my nightmares in making the film is I didn't want anything that the actors were doing, I didn't really want it to be done later. I wanted them to feel it real now. So even this jump across is that you're gonna see is real, as much as possible. And then it's embellished, it's touched by uh, Tom Wood, the CG guy, later. And it, th- one of the key things I felt is that you have to make the CG guy part of the set, like the, ca- like Galvin Kushler, the cameraman, like Mark Tilsley, like the, you know, like all the different departments, wardrobe. So he's there all the time, and it feels like the, gr- the film's growing organically, because the danger is otherwise, sometimes CG feels like it's, ...stuck on afterwards, really, in a way, and doesn't belong to the actors. Whereas the vast majority of audiences are experiencing it... ...every time they're experiencing a film through the actors' reality, really. Do they believe the actors? Do they believe what they're seeing? And that's the only way you're ever going to believe it, really, in a way. So whatever happens, one of us is staying behind. This is a lovely moment (laughs) of timing... (laughs) ...in which he assumes it's going to be him what you're all <laughs> His glass is always half empty, really. <laughs> this is, I think, for the actors, this was the worst set. Because we were in there for days and days doing all this stuff, ripping the stuff off the walls and packing themselves in it, and it's all covered in dust, and it's her- horrific. Kind of working conditions for them, really. Hey, It's a bit like, it's a bit... I mean, one of the good things about it, in a way, is it's a bit like... You know, the, the real story is that you just are literally locked in a studio for three months all together. The sets are basically all the same, you know, every day. You don't get a different set to go to. It's all the same places all the time. And this kind of, like, siege mentality emerges of you all kind of locked together on a kind of journey trying to do something, trying to achieve something, really. All right, we only got one shot at this. So the fire across, which is a development, really, of the wonderful bit in 2001 where he he, he fires across. And this, we, we develop it, really, with giving, giving the three of them, really, and then as, the, as they're fired across, atta- or they try to attach to each other like that. But they literally would be fired across like bullets across there. And he's an enormously complicated, thing to do and a lot of this, like that shot, which is one of those shots I love, is, um, is, is done while you're shooting something else, you know, the stunt guys are doing that while you're working somewhere else and they do it again and again and again until they get it right and they bring you it on a little video camera to show you what they've been doing in the next door studio you're, while you're working on something else and all these pieces have, are done in tiny little sections really as you try and build it up and then the editor, Chris, tries to put them all together and make sense of them really. And again, this is uh, the zero G moment inside here. He floats away. Troy floats away, and they, uh, you're left with this zero G moment. And, the, uh, <laughs> and this kind of stuff just takes forever. You cannot believe what it's like. And then the CG guys take out the wires and they take out the pole arms, and you're left, hopefully, with, as you'll see here, they had axes on wires, they had stuntmen on wires, and then they literally have releases where they just drop them to the floor, and so we turned it upside down and as though they're dropping to the ceiling somehow to disorientate you. This I think is a great death. I mean that's the other thing I think about the script is that as we're saying about the crises, the other thing that Alex invented really was great deaths for them. So you've got a guy who's burnt up by the sun on the shield, and then you have a guy who is just, you know, it's minus 273 degrees outside that ship, and he is frozen, absolutely frozen, like steel, really, or not quite as tough as steel, but because that steel he bumps into there, and uh, shatters into thousands of pieces, really, and is a terrifying death for a guy who just wants to go home, really. That's all. are you all right? Yeah. Yeah. His eventual fate, of course, like all of us and becomes an important part of the film, is that he turns into stardust. He rejoins the stardust from which we all came. You then immediately move to um, the guy who sacrificed himself on the other ship, and he has a great death as well. This was extraordinary to do this, and the courage of this guy. This guy's a Maori, right? And you know the kind of all blacks, if you know anything about Rugby Union, how tough those guys are when they play. This is one hell of a tough guy. Because what he had to do here, this room is full of dust. I mean, the Cornish pasty dust, there's just tons of it in this room. And we set up these uh, kind of blasters at the bottom of the set, and we are all in there with the cameras, but we are completely covered, you know, like the guys from ET when they come come into the, the house at the end, you know, all covered up in spacesuits to protect ourselves. All he's got is a pair of sunglasses. I think he put a couple of cotton wool buds up his nose. And then as the ships separate, and as you get this sense of the light penetrating his room, we physicalize it really by actually suggesting that there's such force and energy that it blasts him. ...and picks up the dust and just hammers him as he turns into dust as well. As he returns to dust. And uh, that took a lot of guts, i got to say, to stay there. I think people were looking at me thinking, ''He's not going to do this, is he?'' And he did do it, and he stuck there. And God bless him, really. So I've been through Chris's activity five. that's the end of um... Soul, That's him over with. And it's the same with- now their next crisis, and uh, we return to Corazon's solution to what you've got to do to survive this. Really, with the oxygen levels that are available in the ship, to keep going. For me, this is this is an example of I. I remember I said to, this wasn't in the original script, and I said to Alex, we need a we should have a scene with a vault on whether to uh, on on what to do, you know, because I. There had been the vaulting scene earlier when they'd said, ''No, we're not going to have a vault, we'll just leave it up to him.'' I said, ''No, they should definitely have a vault.'' And that was all I said to him. And he came back with this scene, which is a fantastic bit of writing. I mean, I've done three couple of films with Alex and adapted to his book, and this is the best scene I think he's ever written. It's the kind of scene that it kind of shoots itself, it acts itself. It's so good. You don't need to do anything to it. You just let them play let them get on with it, and it seemed obvious that the way that we should shoot it was these huge close-ups, you know, big, chunky close-ups. The format that we shot the film on is anamorphic. That was Alvin Kushler, the cameraman. It was his brilliant idea. He knew that in order to do these landscapes of space, you need this very widescreen format. But the other thing widescreen loves are these big, intense, claustrophobic close-ups where you just crush the actor's face into this kind of... Um, ...horizontal strip, if you like. You just push their face in and chop their hair off... ...and push them in their very claustrophobic effect. You know where I stand. It's wonderful for the film and... Uh, ...very interesting, because I think in a few years' time... ...it'll probably have gone, I'm afraid, and it'll be, digital will have taken over... ...and we'll have lost this... You'll lose something, I think. There's something about this uh, about this format and using it on celluloid that is very special. I think it's something about celluloid, still with a human face, you don't quite get it with digital. I think just to the same degree, okay. it's got a warmth in it somehow that connects you with them. And like I say, you you can't really you didn't have to say anything to the actors with this scene, really. They um, it's such a good scene; they know how to play it. I know it. the argument. I know the logic. You're saying you need my vote. And a beautiful conclusion, really, to it. That, and it's the beginning of the idea. For me, it was the beginning of the idea of that they're scientists, they're rationalists, but she refuses to add her name to that rationality, really, because she knows they're right. They are right in a way. They got to kill him, but she refuses just to add her name to it, really, to vindicate it somehow. That's a wonderful stand and a wonderful kind of moral scene, really. One of my favourite scenes in the film, and certainly one of the favourite scenes I've, I've... I've shot in all the films I've made, I think, as a scene. It's followed by a very interesting, double-edged scene. Because they go to kill him, and, and the assumption is very much, and it's very much set up like this, that it looks like he's killed himself. When he gets there to Trey, it looks like, and, in fact, they say he's, uh, he's committed suicide. In fact, what we, what we were suggesting, and this is the key to it, when Mace opens this drawer and there are two blades already missing, is that Pinbacker has taken those blades and has used one of them to kill Trey and to leave him as you find him in this scene and he keeps the other blade, which he slashes Kappa with later. So, in fact, he's made this look, in order so as not to reveal himself to the crew yet, he's made it look like a suicide, but, in fact, he's killed him. That's a shot... (laughs) ...out of Shallow Grave, actually, which there are... It is amazing, shooting this film, there were odd moments where I thought, Oh, my God, this is like Shallow Grave. That was one of them. Another one was the vault scene, actually. There's a vault scene in Shallow Grave where they kind of draw, draw short straws to decide who should cut up the body. And it is amazing the way you try and work in different... <laughs> you try and make the films as different as possible and they're all, they all end up being the same again somehow in some strange little ways. I had, this, I had this idea that there were birds flying around here, really, which is a kind of just a poetic thing, really, a melancholy thing for Trey, which I think people assume he's, he's selected the birds to fly around the room while he's killed himself, which is fair enough. But as I said, our original intention was that... Um, was that Pinback has killed him. almost like a piece of theatre. He'd set it up as a piece of theatre really, in a way. And he wasn't gonna reveal himself yet. So he makes you know it the perfect you know? don't want you apparent suicide. I just want if you, like. you to know that this belongs here. Very good again, a very good setup between the two guys who kind of just can't bear each other really and they have to kind of they find a kind of grudging respect for each other eventually which sort of starts here really when they realize that their their <laughs> what they initially uh, respond to their kind of male instinct their aggression is valueless now really and the girls walk away because we need to limit our exertions there's not enough oxygen really to allow them to behave in the way that they have done earlier and they, you know they try and repeat the scene almost in a way and they just can't re- react like that they're going to have to be a lot wiser than that from now on Beautiful establishment of the ship moving closer and closer to the sun. We then get this, we go back into the payload and we have this wonderful scene, I think, which is a great scene in the script. And this was one of the big advantages that we had with having Icarus, the voice of Icarus, Chipo Chung, in with the actors the whole time, so that this scene, which is an absolute yeah. ping-pong dialogue, back and forth between them, you are dying. they could play it for real. You now, normally what you'd do is you'd record her, you know, and maybe play it back to the actor, but then he'd have to fit his timing to the way it was pre-recorded or even if you cut it, it would, you know, you'd, it becomes a technical exercise. In fact, she's actually just off the set with a microphone and she's talking to him like that so they can interrupt yeah. each other. And you can listen to each other, and it's very... It's like... Um, I was very pleased with that. With Again, it's the sacrifice that you make, because you pay cheapo to come on set and you know, to be around. You could save a lot of money by actually kind of just recording it all in one day or two days. But it gives you this performance level. And I, I'm always trying to make sure that everything's done for the actors as much as you can, especially with something so technical like this, so that they've got a kind of... Everything's as real as possible for them. This is shot off a crane, which you shouldn't do, really. This kind of intricate control. But the guys who did this did an amazing job. Because it does very gives a very kind of <laughs> creepy feeling, I think. Uh, especially with the, the flash cut-ins of... They are a residue. There was originally a scene that you saw... Before this scene, you saw a scene of, of this strange alien-type figure... ...waiting in the sunroom, in the observation room. And we shot it, and then rather than use it there, we we flash... Chris Gill and I flash-cut it in at at those moments there like that. And then you come to uh, the observation room and... um, (laughs) Pinbecker charging himself up with light. I've been told... I've just come back, actually, from doing the publicity tour, and I've been told I didn't realise that this line, this wonderful first line he's got, is a reference to... There's a line in Star Wars like it. Are you an angel i always love that line are you an angel um, it was used we, we used it later on in the film as well, although we caught that uh, i've been waiting so long <sighs> so what 's interesting of course, is that your if you like you? your villain your you know deeply disturbed figure oh, is not in the darkness he 's a figure of light he comes out of the light literally out of the light and this is uh, a fantastic actor who i know from the london from i've worked with him in london on the stage a couple of times and mark strong a fantastic actor who put up with an enormous amount he had to have this suit he had to it would take like 5 6 hours of makeup every day for him to have it done and then the way i wanted to shoot it was I wanted him to have that kind of makeup on that made him look, you know, deeply burnt and disfigured, almost beyond recognition. But then I wanted to shoot him like this so that you were... It it was difficult to... It was a question of perception, really. It was a challenge to your sanity, whether he was actually almost there or not, really, whether you could... But you can touch him. He's real. But actually, he's distorting, and he realises it's him and that he's switched. He's jumped across the ships at that moment. That's the explanation of it, really. That's how it's been done. And he recognises inside the scarring and beneath the disfigurement that it's the captain of the previous ship. And I guess someone who would be a hero to all mankind and who has changed so much in this way. And that's the other knife that he's kept from the drawer that we talked about earlier. He disconnects him, as a part of that action, he disconnects him from communication with the rest of the ship, from the, with the Icarus, um, the clackers, really, the communications, the comms link to the rest of the ship. So he's on his own, now, really, in a way, for his crisis as he runs injured away from him. This disfigurement that we did, this this blurring we did, we did all of that live. We did it with what's called a 50-50 rig, which is that it's two cameras looking into a 50-50 mirror. One gets a perfect image and one shoots through the mirror and gets a reversed image, but then you can flop it and you get two images of the person. one of which is perfect, and the other one, the cameraman has a diopter or a distorting lens in front of it. And it twists and bends and uh, pulls the face. And the idea of it was that he was like... He'd been exposed to such light that it's almost like he'd been... He wasn't just like a burns victim, he was like a... that Like the forces that make him up had been reorganized somehow. And there was kind of energy burning off him, strange forces coming off him. It's, uh, it's a big shift in the film. And we were—we always had in mind that the film would move at this point and would move out of realism into something... We always used to say it's not a tea party. You know, they are, they are approaching the sun, the surface of our star. This extraordinary uh, event. And that their, their sanity is... This is the moment where it's challenged more than anything, in a way, is this figure, which in some way they summon up and in some way is there as well, is the ultimate challenge to their sanity, really. And he begins to literally shot the ship down. And presumably repeat the action of what's been done in the first, on the first Icarus ship. This is a great shot to give a sense of scale. This, it's quite difficult to, to think of shots where you can to come up with shots, CG shots, where you actually give, try and give a sense of scale of what they're actually flying into. And this, of course, is the moment of <laughs> hope I remember when we showed this to the guys at Fox in America, they they couldn't believe that we'd offer a moment of hope like this where she sees this beautiful, beautiful little green shoot and then she dies so soon after it. Because it's a moment of hope, really, which, understandably, people would want to try and maintain for as long as possible, but the crisis is going to get a lot worse. Very difficult to shoot this. To make that green that impactful right at the beginning, And yet, for it to be so small, you have to use a very special lens. It's a brilliant piece of focus holding by the focus puller there to hold that. Very tricky to do. Oh, Cassie, oh, Kappa. Icarus. But die she must. Like I said, you've got to be able to kill them. You can kill them in any order that you want. (laughs) And they die great deaths. And that's another one where she stretches to try and... uh, You know, she's... It's pulled away from her, really. Hope is pulled away from her at the most cruel moment. But that's filmmaking, I guess, really. So, very brilliant little invention of this... This little jacket that he wears is the the costume designer, Susseret Lalab, Cos she said, look, you can't have him, he's got... He's got 30 minutes still to go now and he's going to have this huge wound in his chest. You're going to have a nightmare trying to keep continuity about how much blood loss he's got. And she said, anyway, wouldn't he try and stem the bleeding? Wouldn't he try and do something about his bleeding? And she came up with this kind of thing which she gave the astronauts to wear earlier when they went in the suit, as though it's some part of the suit. And it allows him to kind of somehow kind of bind his skin together somehow at the front. And it allows us also to get away with a lot of the continuity nightmares. And darkness descends, really. Ironically, next to the source of all light in our solar system, they're pitched into total, endless darkness. Although it being a movie, it can't be (laughs) completely dark. There's got to be some source of light in order to be able to see things. Thankfully, there's some torches around which allow you to see them. Anybody? How sound is done by Glenn Fremantle, brilliantly. Sound is extraordinary in space, because you probably i have been more aware of it than any other film. I've always said that, you know, sound is 70% of a film of a film experience, but I've never felt it more than in space. You need it to create a sense of weight when you're using CG. The only way that CG images look like they've got weight as opposed to looking real, they sort of feel real, in a kind of invisible way, is sound. You kind of put a rumble. And then, of course, obviously, for these moments of fear, you, you kind of lose sound, and then you flood it back in again, really, through music or through some kind of effect, and then you lose it again, to suggest their fragility, really, their vulnerability, their loneliness, if you like. And this is mace's crisis, and it's really Kappa's crisis as well and it's the way the two of them deal with it really, which is the the um, the the source of the, the the end of the film and and obviously and, and their their success if you like you know what they managed to achieve by the end of the film really The coolant that you've seen him in earlier that we've established earlier is now. The machines the computer files the computer the hard drives have actually been taken out of the coolant it's very interesting this coolant stuff because they talked about we saw all these pictures of these render farms in japan where they render a lot of this cg imagery and like they're enormous factories of computers but two-thirds of the size of it is fans cooling the computers down, because they've got this huge problem with these enormously powerful machines, how to keep them cool, how to keep the temperatures down, and that's where we came up with the idea of the coolant here. <laughs> now, he had a lot of guts here, because the only way that you can get those... that his breath to be cold is for the room to be really, really cold. And in order to do that, that coolant, that water that he's in, has to be incredibly cold temperature. And so he had, to, he had to go into that water and stay in it for quite a long time. And it is below freezing. And it's very, very tough. It's a very tough call for him. But he was very, it was brilliant how he did it and, and used it to help his performance, if you like. Cassie alone. I love this, because she turns the, you know, it's like the idea is that the girl in Jeopardy, which is a kind of traditional kind of convention in this kind of sequence. But she she outwits him, really. She gathers the knife and waits, really, for him to reveal himself in some way. Unfortunately, because of Macy's success, he is revealed, you know, he acts, and then she can, rather than just be destroyed by him, she actually can take action against him, which she does there. This is a great bit of acting, where she... You see her just look at this thing in front of her, moving, distorting. So it's not like a, a cinema effect. We wanted it to feel like that was what the actors were seeing, was what was happening, what you were seeing, him blurring and distorting, they were seeing as well, in a way. <laughs> so he had to submerge himself. Every take, we'd make, he'd submerge himself under it, and then compiling out, and it's so cold. But he manages to begin to restore light to uh, the ship. This sound is this beautiful melancholy bit that Underworld did to suggest the kind of they tried to put it with each of the deaths. Really, once you saw them, he'd been she's been left cruelly in this kind of body position by the by Pinbacker, really. And Cassie heads for the, Cassie heads for the payload. Come on. So, this is the problem for the two of them and how they're going to deal with it. We're in orbit. The computer's dead. <laughs> it's very tough because he's <laughs> in order to in order to just make it feel cold. It has to be so cold for him. And uh, the in order to get those breaths, you've got to be in the real cold. We didn't have the money to do them. You can do them in CG, actually. But we didn't have the money to be able to do them with that, you know. So we, uh, we just froze him, really. <laughs> and his teeth are chattering. And it does, it is interesting, you get to a point which... I guess we probably don't experience it very much unless you go somewhere extreme. Your teeth chattering becomes involuntary. He, he, he can't control it. <laughs> they actually are chattering. There's an involuntary reaction of in the body it tries to warm things up by vibrating them, you know, by making them move, and that's <laughs> the teeth chattering which he didn't have any control over. I love the fact that the two of them become... they kind of gain a respect for each other, really. And I wanted him... The reason for the camera here and him looking into the camera Although he can't see Mace, because we can, it was almost that Kappa could see the sacrifice that he's making, and acknowledge the kind of what he's, what he's offering up really, and and then and he hands the baton to Kappa. Really, we added this leg trap later, actually, because when I saw this footage, I saw that thing going down. I thought. Oh, it'd be wonderful if he's... After everything that he's done, he would succeed. He would get out of there, Mace. Except that, ironically, this terrible thing happens, which he just happens to get trapped by... The thing he's trying to make go back in the water, go back in the coolant, traps his leg and cuts it, and he has to then... He he knows he's finished and he has to hand the baton on. Because I don't think... Otherwise, I don't think anything could stop this guy. You know, he just pushed through everything. But fate intervenes and he has to hand the baton on to Kappa. I always thought that was a very homoerotic moment there between them and that kind of weird kind of relationship they have where they really don't like each other but actually they have this enormous kind of love for each other in the end, really, in a way. And it energizes, it definitely energizes Kappa. He knows if that guy who can, uh, has, has, hasn't, you know, has only managed to do so much, then he's got to step up to the plate and do it himself. Again, the circles that I was talking about earlier—we tried to—they're all in all the set, you know, all the all the circles of the, of the of the doors and and the hole that he creates when he burns a little hole through there to to create an area whereby he can depressurize the whole ship, eventually. So we were trying to use those circles and the circles of the ship against the, you know, so you create this kind of these. It becomes more and more. Ideally, it becomes what what we were aiming for is a kind of it becomes almost not a silent movie, but it becomes a visual experience, what you're gonna go through from from now on, really. The film operates in kind of almost almost in silence, really, You know, certainly in terms of dialogue, there's very, very little dialogue. After you've had that sequence with Mace, the rest of it takes place on a visual level, really. This sound is based on the uh, Sgt. Pepper's thing on the day in the life, where they run the orchestra backwards and escalate it. I love that. <laughs> ...for that crazy moment of it all blasting out. You see, eventually, here, this <laughs> is a dummy. It isn't actually Corazon, I have to reveal. It's a dummy of Corazon. But they can make dummies these days that just look absolutely the most real things you 've ever seen, and for a moment you think it 's her for a moment it 's very freaky when you walk walking around the sets and there 's these dummies lying around with <laughs> all the axes <actors. laughs> just thrown in the corner they 're so lifelike now what they can do with this silicon stuff these the latest things they develop like that and he sets off on his walk through the through the ship, so the idea is that they depressurize the Everything in the ship, the area that Mace is actually in, that you're eventually going to see him in again, is actually an airlock in itself. is sealed anyway, so he's left there. But the rest of the ship has been literally ripped out, and everybody in the ship has been ripped out and thrown out into space, except Mace and Pinbacker and Cassie, who've gone through the other airlock onto the payload. Well, that's my excuse anyway. One of the things I learnt here was and it was i think it comes out of having worked with killian before is this camera that is in his face that you see a number of times through the whole of the sequence it is very weird because you're actually the camera is literally pointing straight at him right up close to him and yet he's going through these whole experiences and he can't see anything other than a camera just looking at him and in that sense i suppose it's a bit like 2001 which is that you know the stargate section of that must have been like that as well He's dependent on you as a director, talking him through what's happening. Because he's, he, can see, he can see nothing, he can't hear very much anyway, he's deafened by the sound of the camera, and uh, you have to talk him through everything that's going on. Um, and it becomes a kind of... There's a bond grows between you, I think, and it's based on trust you have from having made a film earlier, because you're asking him for the most extreme emotions possible, and yet, he, is, he can't experience anything of it. He's just generating it for you. And he's kind of offering it up for you. John, the composer, Murphy brings in his classical theme again here, which I love this uh, theme. It's a kind of heroic, wonderful moment, really. Awesome moment. I remember when he delivered this tune. I just uh, adored it. And we had this, uh, we always had this idea that he would fall over. <laughs> And uh, he's. Killian has to. Killian falls over with this huge helmet on, which is. And the guys are. And he's trying to get up, and I'm screaming at him, Get up! Get up! And then. uh, But he can't hear me saying to the other guys, Hold him down! Hold him down! (laughs) So he's trying to push his way up out of here, thinking, Why can't I get up? He's telling me to get up! I can't get up! (laughs) It's fantastic, and you could say to the guys out of his hearing, Keep him down! Keep him down! And then um, he pushes himself up, and I love that. It's quite—it's very interesting, as an actor, he's, he's hes such a very modest guy, and yet, I think because of some of the other movies he's done since we worked together, he is much more aware of that at some point you have to, as a lead actor, you, you step forward and take hold of the film and kind of deliver the film home and, again, Bring the film home really for everyone and that's what a lead actor has to do eventually and he he does that in spades here really that's it kind of that's always what we call the blade runner moment where you see these these flames in the <laughs> as the ship separates Yeah, you get to the big uh, moment of the film, and I we put this in afterwards actually, Rose's voice, and it was in a funny kind of way. Rather than Killian acting to it, we sort of put her in reaction to what he was doing. Really, it, it, he kind of like suggested it almost in a way by his performance, though, that he wanted to hear from her again somehow in a way for a moment, just to help him on the final step. And this is where you just screaming at him, trying to de- trying to describe to him what he's what he's going through at this moment, and all he can feel is a camera lens stuck right in his face. (laughs) It's just the most bizarre thing, film acting, that they have to do. So there's a moment coming up here where it's very missable. You can miss it so easily. As the ship gets separated, gets taken away. But I asked Tom to try, if he could, very late on to give us some reference, visual reference, to the figure of Icarus really, and which the ship is named after. And so there's a moment there where the famous picture of Icarus who's flown too close to the sun and is destroyed. And this shot, I don't know how they do this stuff. It's just <laughs> But I love it, you know, when you see that kind of detail done on that kind of scale, it's a real tribute to them all really. So They call them hamsters, actually, it's very cruel, but there's so many guys all tapping out numbers on their computer keyboards, tapping out these ones and zeros, and they're all in this room, and they call them very cruelly the hamsters, really, (laughs) which is, I guess, hamsters on a wheel, really, but without them, we wouldn't be able to do stuff like that, so thank you, hamsters. This is the final reel of the film. The film split up, actually, in in an old movie scenario into into seven reels, and this is the short final reel where they appear on the bomb. And this extraordinary scene where no one... Science can't tell you. the, The scientists couldn't describe to us. We had a great science advisor, Brian Cox, who I believe has done another commentary on the film. But they can't really tell you what kind of forces would be what would happen to the human body, to the human mind, as you if you could ever get that close to the sun in in the way that you see it there? Would it flatten, would it kind of stretch, distort, you know, would you explode? Would you just freeze in time because the velocity would be so great? Would time stand still? So would you stand still? Nobody seems to know. So what we try to we try to suggest it all through the pin back a character really and through his assault on him really and his and the statement of his philosophy, really, this this most extreme fundamentalism, really, this the begging science to bow down in front of, you know, fate or God or destiny and actually not try to improve your life. And it, for me, it's really what the film's, um, about, really, is that out of all this, out of the kind of chaos and carnage, out of all this, uh, horror and terror and, uh, like a moment where, out of all this indescribable energy and force comes something very, very beautiful, in a way, which is actually, ironically, is a meeting of science and nature. As this, this figure that denies science, this figure who has been a scientist, Pinbacker, but has turned his back on it and has seen the light, or too much light, really, and has turned his back on it, But he is defeated, really, by these two young scientists who deliver the bomb in the end, which is when the the sequence then moves to... He finally goes inside to explode the bomb. These are all amazing kind of CG images, and the gravity of something like that bomb, the idea was that gravity, you could stand on any, any side of the bomb, on any one of its six sides, you'd be able to... Uh, stand on because it, it would be the gravity pulling you into the bomb. That was the idea of that. But the forces of gravity that would be happening, that would be pulling the ship in at this speed, are just beyond belief anyway. There is another version of that sequence with Pinbacker, actually, which you can see on the DVD extras, which we shot as a reshoot, but actually we decided to go with the original ending that we we chose. Kappa's left now to ignite, to kind of manually, if you like, to kind of kick-start the bomb manually, if you like, because the computer's malfunctioning at these kind of distortions. But basically what is happening here is he's trying to ...trigger the bomb, if you like. And what happens immediately after this is that once these sparks begin... ...as you begin to see the sparks that you've seen earlier... ...you can imagine that this would be... This is basically being inside a nuclear bomb as it detonates. And in the billionth of a second that it would take for that to happen... ...he experiences this wonder, really, as he's described earlier... ...in that lovely speech, which is he wants to be there for it, happening. And actually, he doesn't realize, but he's going to be inside it as it happens. ...and uh, as it finally enters the surface of the sun and the moment is triggered... ...you take away all the sound, if you can, because a lot of it's sound in the end... ...and then you obviously bring it back in again. And for me, this image was always that he was sandwiched, really, between science's power... ...which is the most terrifying and awesome thing we've ever invented, this nuclear bomb... ...and, if you like, nature's power. Some people call it God's power, nature's power, really, which is, and he's sandwiched for a moment between these two, for the billionth of a second it would take to detonate, he's sandwiched between these two forces. And as, a, as he reaches out to touch he, the classic, the hand gesture that we send up into space as images of ourselves as greeting, he greets this power, really. And for me, he sees something, not necessarily God, he sees something beyond the kind of rational, really. He sees something beyond words and beyond, almost beyond imagination, really, in a way. He acts it beautifully, Kel, because none of that's there for him at the time. <laughs> it's just a light shining at him. And a very talented German cameraman, Olivin Guschla. And there's a wonderful, there's actually a wonderful Orden poem just for a bit of of a classical moment here. There's a wonderful Auden poem where he says, which goes to show that the bard he's referring to Shakespeare was sober when he wrote that this world of fact we love is unsubstantial stuff. All the rest is silence on the other side of the wall. I love that sense of, of being something beyond really things you can explain, beyond that you can talk about. We inherited that really from 2001, where you try to do something at the end of a film that's actually... You try to just deliver a film visually, really, and let people's own experiences and their own predilections and their own imagination uh, work on the film as much as possible. This sequence is shot in, in Stockholm, actually. There's an alternative version of this shot in Victoria Park in East London, which we did when we had no money. And then we sent it to Fox and said, to Peter Rice at Fox, and said, please give us some money to do it properly. And he sent us to Stockholm in the snow. And the, the Sydney Opera House, of course, is put on afterwards. And it is a beautiful, wonderful image of modern life, really. It's a kind of as a grace that's both futuristic and present day. It's one of those universal buildings that connects us all in some kind of way. We always put the credits at the end of the film. Always try to do that so rather than put them. Always just try and put the title at the beginning of the film, and put all the credits at the end of the film when you've seen whether we've done a decent job or not. So this is a this is an Underworld song called Peggy Sust, which uh, just pay tribute to the guys. who have done we've done some we've done few bits of stuff together, and they. Provided this wonderful song for the end of the film to give a kick at the end of the film and did an amazing, um, amazing job with John Murphy on the music of the whole film. And I love the ending that precedes that song because it's kind of, although it's a triumph, it's modest really. And it's, I think, with the forces of nature that they're dealing with and that man is interfering with, you know, with the kind of audacious, breathtaking role of science really that you also have to maintain a kind of modesty about it, that it mustn't become a conquest and a victory, but you just become a further part of nature, really, developing and and maintaining life that's been first created for us by the star. The music then is taken over by this group, a Manchester group, I Am Clute. And this song was originally at the beginning of the film, right across the beginning of the film, but we moved it to the end eventually, and we developed this sequence for the titles. There's so many people work on a movie like this that what we did is we thought, well, the way we'll try and keep them in the theater or the way we try and keep them watching the DVD is we'll run sections of the film on one section so that you can get to see some of the imagery twice. It's also because it costs so much, some of it. We thought, oh, well, we'll use it twice. We'll get a double use out of it. No, it's, um, it's so that you can, I know, members of the public really aren't interested in all the different people who worked on it, and who is Terry Roberts, the electrician, but believe me, those kind of people are why you're seeing a film like this, because we made it with uh, very little money in the end, and it's down to the dedication and inspiration of all these people that helped us make the film, really, I guess. Um, And so uh, we gave them, we we let there be a reason, and also... uh, ...to have a lovely song with it, really. Um, and uh, there's beautiful lyrics on the song as well, if you, if you care to listen to them. Some of them are about being growing up in Manchester, but some of them are appropriate to the film as well, if you like. When Alex first gave me the script, he, I think he thought we'd have to make the film in Hollywood. And it's a tribute, really, to the producer, Andrew MacDonald, who I thought could get this film made in Britain. And he did an amazing job, he raised 20 million pounds and gave us the freedom to cast whoever we wanted and to make the film on our own terms in the way we wanted to make it. So it's a huge tribute to him, the quality of the film and the people that he gathered together and that's what a producer does. All those names that you see, that's what they do. They make the creative cake, really. They provide all the ingredients and then it's up to me, really, to cook it, I guess, if you like. I'd also just like to, before I finish, pay tribute to Paloma Baeza, really, who you see in the very final scene of the film, who uh, is Capa's sister in the park, and there's a real connection there because it was Paloma, who's as well as being an actress, very fine actress, she's also a very good director, and she, it was she who suggested Killian Murphy to us way back there on 28 Days Later, and that's how we met him, and that's how we ended up here. So it's a big thank you to her as well. Okay, that's my lot. I'm out of here. Thanks once again for bothering to listen to the to the commentary. It's lovely to do it, and in a funny kind of way to say goodbye to sunshine. But thanks all for joining us with it. Okay. Cheers now. Who I will be Thank you.